Now you hear the word of God (laughs) from Luke's Gospel, chapter 9. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was going on, and he was perplexed because some were saying that John had been raised from the dead, others that Elijah had appeared, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago had come back to life. But Herod said, I beheaded John. Who then is this I hear such things about? And he tried to see him. Once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowd say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, God's Messiah. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. And he said, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Then he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit or lose their very self? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. About eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John, and James with him and went up onto a mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. As the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what he was saying. While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and covered them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves and did not tell anyone at that time what they had seen. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, Waypoint. How's everybody doing? I always appreciate that. Thank you, Stanley. I'm doing good, too. Uh, nobody ever asked me, asked back, so, you know, it's always nice to be talked back to every once in a while. 
I have feelings too. Um, I want to start this morning uh, with, with something a little different. Obviously, we're, in, we're looking at the, the transfiguration. I gave you a little bit more there than the transfiguration, but, but this, is, this is how Luke is building up his story to tell us about this moment, this, this, this appearance of Jesus where his face shone and, and there's like lightning flashing with his clothing, all this stuff, the clouds coming down. All of the, what, what's going on here? But before, before we enter into this, this, uh, this, my take on it, I wanted to start by praying. And I started praying a, a prayer on Thursday of this week that I've continued to pray every day since. And, and so I wanted to, to start this morning by bringing you into that prayer because maybe prayers can be contagious. And maybe, maybe you'll want to align your heart with it. I'm just going to pray for us. Lord, we come before you this morning. Lord, I, I pray that through looking at this passage together, that we might encounter your glory, that we would see you as you really are, that our deepest longing would be to stand before your face, and that we would come to believe that we will dwell with you because you desired to dwell with us. God, do it for, for let it be so. Do it for Christ's sake. For his glory, we pray in, it, in his name. Amen. Now, I believe prayer is a, a helpful way to start our journey toward the transfiguration today because it draws our attention to the fact that Jesus expected us to encounter the presence of God through prayer. Verse 27 and 28 say, Truly, I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. And then in this next section, we see the kingdom of God is coming about. We see it. He says about eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John, and James with him and went up onto a mountain to pray. Now, how many of us would have skipped this little excursion with Jesus because it was a prayer meeting? Right? Some have asked me, why did only three disciples go up with Jesus? Because I think they were all invited and only three decided to show up. We cannot overlook the place of prayer on the path of discipleship. Alongside hearing the words of, of Jesus, prayer becomes a catalyst for understanding more of the character of Jesus and opening ourselves more to the plans of God. Today we're looking at the transfiguration, and the transfiguration is a seismic story because it prepares us for the cross. It's Jesus tipping his hand, if you will, a story that should capture our imaginations not because it's fictional, but because gazing at the unveiled glory of God should provoke wonder and awe in us. Now, if you were to talk to my wife recently, she would probably tell you that I've been watching too much MasterChef. To be honest. And, and honestly, it all started because I watched Gordon Ramsay. I watched him carve up a chicken blindfolded. And it was glorious. I mean, it was amazing. Like, like you got to see it. It was amazing. It was just stunning to watch someone so masterful do something like that. But how much more than when we gaze upon the works of Jesus, our master, that he provokes us to wonder and awe at all that he does. The transfiguration is recounted in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And some would argue that it's referenced at the beginning of John. In, in chapter 1 of John, it says, The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, according to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, John was there. He saw it with his own eyes. 
He saw a foretaste of future glory. It's no wonder then that the church has preserved this account for thousands of years. Such are the realities of the person and works of God in Christ. Who God is will be made known throughout history. What God does will last forever. So this morning you heard sections of of Luke chapter 9 read. And as we continue in this part of Luke's gospel, more and more people are encountering the wonderful works of God. And people are beginning to talk. They're asking, who who is this guy? News is traveling. Who is this guy? I mean, last week we heard the disciples say, who is this? He commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. Who is this? But now we're starting to see just how wide-reaching this question has become. In verse 7, Herod Antipas, who, believe it or not, was the son of King Herod, hears about the expanding ministry of Jesus and his disciples. He hears about how they're going out with power to bring about healing for the people. And he's perplexed as he begins to consider the various theories about the identity of Jesus. Who is this guy? Listen to this, theory number one. This is what what Herod's saying. This is what he's hearing. Theory number one, Jesus must be John the Baptist raised from the dead. Big, if true, right? Especially for Herod, because he's thinking, well, I beheaded John, so how does that work? That's going to be a problem. (laughs) Am I going to need to do this again? Theory number two, Jesus is the appearance of Elijah. Well, that's weird. What does that mean? In the Old Testament, the book of Malachi was written to the people of God after their return from exile. And what they envisioned upon their return was to rebuild their lives. They expected the promises of the prophets to come true and for the Messiah to come and reunite Israel and the nations. Justice would dwell over the nations. It sounds nice. So they're they're optimistic. But that's not what happened. Instead, injustice abounds and the people are growing frustrated with God. I mean, the book is filled with disputes between God and the people. But then the book ends with a prophetic hope sharing these prophetic words. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I gave him at Horeb for all Israel. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. You see, there is a promise that God will send a new Moses and one in the spirit of Elijah to restore his people. They're awaiting this. So there's anticipation that someone is coming in the power of Elijah. One who will signal, not be, one who will signal the arrival of God's promised servant who will rescue them. So the people are saying, is this, is this our Elijah? Does that mean we, that, 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 that it's close? Theory number three, maybe Jesus is a prophet of old who's come back to life. So you see, all of these have some kind of prophetic thrust to them. Who is this guy? He's some kind of prophet. What's he doing? These are the kinds of narratives the disciples hear circulating around them. They hear it. This is what people are saying. So when Jesus asks them what the crowds are saying about him in verse 19, you see the same things Herod is saying. Well, Jesus, some people say that you're John the Baptist. Some people think you're Elijah. Some people think you're a prophet of old. And then Jesus asks them, well, who do you say I am? 
To which Peter says, you're God's Messiah. You're God's Messiah. He gives us a fourth answer. A fourth theory, if you will. And this creates an interesting juxtaposition with a challenging proposition. What's happening with Herod and with the disciples has a similar effect literarily as to the effect you see in in this picture, if we can put on the screen, what you see happening in this picture visually. I'll say that again one more time. What's happening with Herod and his disciples has a similar effect literarily as what you see happening in this picture visually. The Herod account will be blurry to us and linger in the background. It's going to linger in the background with the looming question, who then is this I hear such things about? While Jesus' interactions with the disciples will continue in the foreground with even greater clarity and weightiness. What Luke is signaling to us is that the question of Jesus' identity isn't just for the innocently curious. Simply asking the question isn't enough. Herod and those like Herod will arrive at very different conclusions than the disciples. And this sets the way for a collision course to the cross. A collision course to the cross. Daryl Bach starts to hit at Luke's larger point when he says, Such curiosity is natural when one looks at Jesus from a distance. But who Jesus really is cannot be discovered through secondhand reports and rumors. Who he is, you can't, you can't just hear it from someone else purely. You have, to, you have to go encounter him yourself. Which brings us to a challenging proposition. In order to grow as a disciple, you must be with Jesus. And Jesus is not stationary. Do you see the risk? You have to choose to go with him. That's how you begin to know him. You apprentice yourself to him. You don't just hear him speak a couple of times. You commit yourself for the long haul. You have to stick it out. Now we might say, wait a minute. Tell me everything there is to know first. Let me do my own risk assessment. Let Let me figure out if this is worth it. But Jesus is saying the only way to know me is if you follow me, how else can you know? You can't just hear about it. You have to see for yourself. Even today, this is difficult for us. There are plenty of theories out there about who Jesus is. Some people say Jesus, Jesus was a good teacher, but he wasn't really God. He's a good teacher. Others say he was a great prophet, someone to be respected, but nothing more. Others say that Jesus is really just a product of legend. He's a glorious myth. And others still attempting to discover the historical Jesus offer the person of Jesus stripped of his supernatural works. And so you have to think about it. You you really have to think about it. Who is this? Everybody's answering this question. Who is this? I had a college roommate who had exposure to Christianity growing up but ultimately concluded it wasn't for him. What he decided is that some people were Christians because that's just what they grew up with. He hadn't, so it didn't fit him. But I challenged him on this. I said, that's, that's crazy to say that all Christians are just those who grew up in a Christian home. That's, that's, that's not how it works. And he felt challenged by that, so he decided to assess for himself. He seemed genuinely curious. 
But what he was really looking for was an explanation to show how Christianity might work for one person, but be incompatible for another. And when he found that, he moved on. You see, he found what he was looking for. He wasn't really looking for Jesus. He wasn't really looking at Jesus. He wasn't really interested in following Jesus. He looked curious. But he hadn't opened himself up to him. He was looking for a way out. What about you? What are you looking for? Because to really open yourself up to Jesus, I mean, you've got to stick it out longer than he did. You have to really be curious. You have to really think. Who is this Jesus? Well, the transfiguration gives us an unveiled look at the person of Jesus. In fact, it's Jesus' answer to the question. He says, you want to know who I am? Look at the transfiguration. I'll come show you. But let me tell you, if you want something more than a watered-down version of Jesus, you can't settle for second-hand reports. You have to really go see for yourself. But regardless, I want, to, I want to point out three realities from the transfiguration that point to the glory of Jesus. The transfiguration shows us at least these three things. It shows us the uniqueness of Jesus. It shows us the mission of Jesus. And it shows us the heart of Jesus. And so first, I want to point to the uniqueness of Jesus. The uniqueness of Jesus. The transfiguration invites us to consider the stature and worth of Christ. Now, we'll touch on this more in a moment, but, but just hear some of this language used to describe the revealed identity of Jesus. It says, The appearance of his face changed. His clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. A cloud appeared and covered them. A voice from the cloud said, This is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. And then when the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. This is the kind of language and imagery that the Old Testament uses to signal the transcendence and power and majesty of God. Of God. You don't seem surprised. Of, of God. We're not talking about just any of, of God. I mean, Psalm 104 begins by saying, Praise the Lord, my soul. Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty. The Lord wraps himself in light as with a garment. Who does that sound like to you? It sounds like Jesus at the transfiguration. Here in Luke, Jesus is clothed in garments as bright as a flash of lightning. And honestly, this, this really shows the humility of Jesus. Because if he had come like this, if we had seen him like this from the very beginning, we would have never come to him because we would have been terrified. We would have known that he was too great for us. He stands alone. After the exodus, the, the, the Lord called Moses up on the mountain with him, where he gave him the Ten Commandments. And when Moses came down from there, we're told that his face shone. So much so that when the people saw him, they had to veil it. They had to hide his face. They had to cover it. But this radiance was only partial, because through Moses, people could only see a reflected glory. His face shone because of his encounter with God. But the appearance of Jesus' face changed because his radiance comes from within. Jesus is the source. He's the light. 
He is the splendor and the majesty. As Hebrews 1 says, Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. These are not superlatives you start handing out to just anyone. No one else is like this. The transfiguration requires that we look at the uniqueness of Jesus. He stands alone. He stands alone. Second, the mission of Jesus. Within the larger context of chapter 9, we have this, this identity question being considered. We've been considering, who is this Jesus? Who is Jesus? And Peter answers by saying, you're God's Messiah. And so Jesus goes on to explain to Peter, immediately after that, he goes on to explain to him that the Son of Man must suffer and die. And then shortly after that, the transfiguration, Jesus will predict his death a second time. After the transfiguration, he's going to say it again, that he's going to die, that the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. But the disciples won't get it. They don't get it. You see, they had the right answer, but they didn't understand the mission. They didn't understand what the Messiah was to do. Now, verses 30 and 31 say, two men... Moses and Elijah appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure. Literally, the the word there is exodus. They spoke about his exodus, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Now, some scholars believe that, that Moses and Elijah appear here because they represent the totality of God's plans conveyed through the law and the prophets. And the law and the prophets had no other end than Christ. In Christ, the totality of the law and the prophets are being fulfilled. Everything in our Old Testament, everything in the Hebrew Bible is being fulfilled in and through Jesus. Everything that God spoke of, everything that he promised is being fulfilled in and through Jesus. This is the mission of God in Christ, to fulfill all of God's plans as he brings us into his glory. But hear me out. Hear me out here. We're told that Moses and Elijah appear on a mountain with Jesus. And Luke just gives us a summary of the conversation? Really? Like, what'd they say? Give us more than, what'd they say to each other? I mean, Luke, you, you purpose to write an orderly account for your gospel. I mean, when he was first told about the unveiled glory of Christ, don't, don't you think he would have asked Peter and John and James? So what'd they say? Yeah, 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 Moses and Elijah, they're there. But, 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 but then it's like he gets sidetracked. Instead of asking more about the conversation, he asks, so what was it like? And Peter and John are like, what do you mean, Luke? He's just, Jesus, he revealed his glory to you. You got to witness the glory of Christ. You saw the face of God. I mean, it's, it sounds like something I was made for. What was it like? And I can just begin to imagine this, this conversation between Luke and Peter and, and John and James. And, and Peter begins to say, oh, yeah, it was incredible. And John chimes in, are, are you going to tell him what you said? And Peter claps back, listen, let me finish. As I was saying... It was incredibly terrifying. I may have said some things that were out of turn, 
But you also need to understand that this was before his resurrection. That changed everything. It made everything he said before that make sense. Now, there are many women in our church right now who are studying through the second half of Exodus. And so when, when they hear this glory on a mountain, all this stuff, they're probably thinking, this, this sounds pretty familiar. And that's because in Exodus 33, Moses asked the Lord, now show me your glory. And the Lord says back to him, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. And I will proclaim my name, the Lord in your presence. But you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. This is how holy our God is. This is how unworthy we are. But what is happening here on the mount with Jesus is that God is saying, Look, see my face, see my glory, and live. What you could not see before, you may see now the holiness and justice of God will stand together. But all of this is being revealed in a way you won't understand. But I'm going to show it to you anyway. They're talking about his exodus, which I think is a package deal, his departure, his exodus. They're talking about his death, resurrection, and ascension. It's the whole plan. It's, he's doing it to completion. And he's bringing us into his forever glory. But the fact that they're talking about his departure means that glory will come through suffering. Glory will come through suffering. Now, I saw this, this tweet the other day that gives a, a powerful summary. I don't know if you, how, how well you can see that, but it gives a powerful summary of just how radical the mission of Christ was in the ancient world. And this is, this is coming from a Nego-pagan Nietzsche enthusiast. I, I know, the internet's a weird place. Please don't ask me. But a, a Nego-pagan Nietzsche enthusiast. He says, real gods like Zeus are forms of the good. Strength, power, beauty, Health, virtue. False gods like Jesus are forms of the bad. Weakness, powerlessness, humiliation, ugliness, emaciation. Which gods we worship determines what we manifest. Manifest the good. Manifest Zeus. That's, that's what, this is another theory. Another theory out there. This, 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 this gives you a picture of what people in the ancient world are thinking about this picture of God. This is going to look like failure. It's going to, humiliation? Where are you going? This is your savior? This is your rescuer? What are you talking about? But Jesus says glory will come through suffering. You need to trust me. He, glory will come through suffering. He will be brought low, but he will be exalted with him. You see, it's not just that Moses and Elijah appear, but verse 30 says they appear in glorious splendor. They are a picture of what awaits us. One day you too will stand in glory with Jesus. We will be radiant with him. Moses and Elijah both did great things for God's sake, but they ultimately fell short. They didn't see the fulfillment of what God had set out to do. These men represent the best of the best in God's redemption project, but both of them were barred from seeing the fullness of God, what God would do. Yet here they stand, and Jesus is telling them, where you fell short, I will not. What you were unable to do, I will bring to completion. They talked about his departure plans. I can only imagine how satisfying that would have been for them. How satisfying, how fulfilling. All that I worked toward was not in vain. God said that he would do it, and he's doing it. And the end result is not to tell them, not good enough. The end result is, you will share in my glory. 
This is the mission of Christ that is at the heart of the Father, that we should share in his glory. That we should share in his glory. Number three, the heart of Jesus. The heart of Jesus. The transfiguration demonstrates that Jesus' glory is not diminished by suffering, but his suffering will demonstrate his very heart. Again, in, verse, in, in Exodus 33, the Lord says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So let's see this in action. The transfiguration shows us the very heart and compassion of Christ for those that he loves. These disciples needed to see Jesus in glory because they would see him most brutally in agony. The transfiguration shows them the glorified Jesus, but the cross will show them the disfiguration of Jesus. They needed to be bolstered for what he would endure because the plans of God will test their faith in Jesus like nothing else. And just to pause for a moment here, can you, can you relate to this? Even a little bit, in your own life, have you ever asked, God, why did you do it this way? Why did it have to go like this? Why couldn't it have been different? Because he's preparing us for an even greater glory. He says, trust me, what you see right now, th things are not as far off as you think. You say, well, how can I trust you? How do I know I can trust you? Because you looked at the cross and you said, my God, I have seen your glory. I have seen your glory. If you'll go with me, when we look at Luke's account of Jesus' prayer before his arrest, it's fascinating how much the transfiguration story has language that, that, that it mirrors Luke's account at the, at the Mount of Olives. The Garden of Gethsemane was at the foot of the Mount of Olives. And in this moment, Jesus earnestly asked his disciples to pray that they would not succumb to temptation. But this time, Jesus doesn't ask them to go up the mount with him because he knows that where he's going, he's going alone. In the Transfiguration account, Luke notes that Peter and his companions were very sleepy. I mean, imagine this. You see Jesus revealing himself in this way, and they're sleepy. Like, Flashes of lightning, I'm tired. And so Peter says in, later in, in Luke 9, in verse 33, he says, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And I love how Luke puts in this little commentary. He didn't know what he was saying. Yeah, it, it, let's, let's be a little compassionate on Peter. He's tired. He had just woken, like, he, 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 they prayed a little too long for him. He, he didn't know what he was talking about. He, his understanding was blurred. He wants something good. He, he wants the glory of God and his chosen Messiah to last. He's like, how can we make this last? But here he includes Jesus as among, one among equals in the pantheon of faith. In, in our modern times, maybe we'd say Peter is situating Jesus on his little Mount Rushmore alongside Moses and Elijah. But as we've already said, Jesus stands alone. Jesus has no equal. Peter's muddling things, and, and the response is to be silenced upon hearing the voice of God declare of Jesus, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. You saw him. Now listen to him. It's appropriate then that the disciples leave the mountain saying nothing. They need to stop talking. 
Everybody needs to settle down. Everybody's talking, all their theories swirling around who we think Jesus is. You need to be silent. And you need to look to him. And you need to listen to him. He's telling you who he is. Will you see it? Will you look and see it? We need to go to God. We need to gaze upon him. We need to listen to him. We need to quiet ourselves. Again, in Luke 22, Jesus says to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he separates from them to pray. Jesus prayed earnestly and in agony. From a human perspective, this is his moment of need. At this point, he has his band of disciples with him saying, we love you, Jesus. We're in this together to the end. But when he comes back to them, he finds them sleeping. And he says to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. You see, where we accuse God of sleeping on us, we're actually falling asleep on him. Where we accuse God of turning his back on us, we actually turn our back on him. We say, we're in, we're in this until the end. We're with you, Jesus. But he asked, do you know who I really am? Do you really know? Don't, don't you see? I don't need to meet your expectations. I don't need to stay up on this mountain and be glorified like this. I don't need to match your theories about me. I am who I say I am. And I will be who I will be. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. And so he goes up in humiliation to do for us what we would never do for him. He goes up in agony to suffer for our sake what we could never endure for ourselves. You say you love me and you turn your back on me. But I tell you, I love you. And even when you turn your back on me, I will deliver you from the evil that has overcome you. And he promises, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Jesus asks, who, who do you say that I am? Not what does your family think? Or what do your friends think? Or your neighbors or your coworkers think? I'll address them too. But who do you say that I am? He's the one who's come in glory. He's the God who humbles himself, who comes in compassion and strength. He's the risen Lord and Savior who takes away the sins of the many. Let's pray. King of glory, we ask you to fill this place. God, you are our king. King of healing. Lord, we ask for healing to come. Would you fill this place? King of our peace. God, you bring peace. You bring healing. You bring wholeness. Lord, we ask that you would fill this place with your presence. King of our joy, fill this place. Fill it with your healing. Fill it with your peace. Fill it with your joy. Fill it with your glory. Show us your face, God. Show us your face. Let us stand in your presence and find true life. Let us draw near to your presence without fear because Christ Jesus has made it so. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. At this time in our worship service, we're going to uh, partake in communion or the Lord's Supper. Um, we do this twice a month here at Waypoint. And uh, on the first Sunday of the month, we enter into a time of
individual confession, the third Sunday of the month, we try to incorporate other elements of how we can make communion a part of our worship, a part of drawing near to God. And in light of this sermon that Eric just preached, and really not what Eric said, but what we saw from Jesus as Luke's giving this account, I want us to all just close your eyes and just imagine Jesus standing before you, beautiful, with open arms, telling you that he loves you, that he cares about you, that he knows your hurt, he knows the pain you've been through, he knows your joys, but he knows your sorrows, and he's with you. And he's interceding for you. And he says he sent the Spirit to fill you. But even if you feel it or you don't, just picture that image of Jesus just loving you and calling you in, saying, this is your future. I love you and I'm with you in this suffering right now. And in that posture, you can open your eyes. In that posture, I want us to come to the table. Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. He took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Whenever you drink it, whenever you drink this cup and eat this bread, you're remembering my death until I return. And we come together here at Waypoint, we do it where we actually ask you to come up and participate. But we come together to do this, to remember the new covenant that we have in Jesus. And that new covenant was sealed when Jesus came. And when he died and he rose again, and he is, he's coming back one day to make all things new. But until that day, we can come to this table over and over and over again, broken people, and look to that beautiful image of Jesus and take this body that was broken and, and drink this cup that represents the blood that was shed so that we could have freedom, so that we could have new life, not just for the future, but for right now too. That's, this is our present and this is our reality now and this is our future. This is for believers. Anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord can come forward and if you've never done it before, make today the day you call upon Jesus and take this meal. Let's, let's do this together. Uh, we do practice something called intinction here at Waypoint where we just, you come up and the server will hand you a small cracker. These are gluten-free and the juice is also gluten-free. Uh, you dip it in there, you can dip it lightly. Uh, you can take it back to your seat and take some time to pray or you can take it immediately. There's no right or wrong way to do it. Um, if you need to, there are stations in the back with the individual cups and the wafers. Um, if, if you need that, they're in the back of the room. And if after we serve everyone, if you need to be, stay seated, we can come and serve you. Uh, this section will come here. So I'm going to bring our, ask our servers to come up.
So you guys will go to this station, you guys will come here, uh, you guys will go there, and y'all over there. Um, at this time, please come forward and partake in the Lord's Supper.
Father, we thank you for your body that was broken and your blood that was shed so that we could wake up each day and say, it's going to be okay. Because the Father sent the Son and the Son came and he loved us and he died and he rose again and he poured out his Spirit And he's with us until the end. And he's given us this body. And he's given us his love and his peace. God, I pray that we'd walk in that grace and that mercy and that love and that peace until we come back to this table again. Thank you for your blood and your body that was broken. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.